Even before the civil rights movement, the Jewish and Black communities shared a history of support and celebration. So like many others, I was shocked by anti-Semitic remarks from some notable Black performers and athletes. I called Pastor Dumasani Washington, an expert on Jewish and Black relations, to understand why this is happening and if it's a growing movement. Given that many of you might have similar questions, we've decided to share our conversation. Hi. Hi, Marissa. How you doing? So it's interesting that we're meeting during Black History Month. Total coincidence. Yes, yeah. But Absolutely. given that this is February, just one yeah. of your thoughts on what, what do you think about Black History Month? I don't know how I feel about it. I've always been ambivalent, or at least as a young adult, right? So what I learned about Black history, I learned at home, right? I, it, my parents were from the segregated South, Little Rock, Arkansas. So I learned about our family, right? I didn't learn it under the moniker of Black history. I just learned about my family, mm-hmm. right? So my dad, who's a, whose dad was a sharecropper and those types of things. And I had a great deal of pride and self-worth from that because the stories that I was told, they were not stories of defeat and racist, this, that, and the other, right? So just a quick example, my mom graduated from Scipio A. Jones High School, the only school that took Black students in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. She loved the school, right? And these graduated doctors, lawyers, politicians. My uncle, I talk about in my book, He, Uncle Levi Adams, he worked for years at uh, Brown Universities and helped other black doctors come into the field, right? So that was my reality, right? So when I hear about Black History Month, I think it's important for the for young people to know. But I think the unfortunate thing that where we are now is everything is so divisive and so mm-hmm. political that it becomes something more negative instead of celebration. So I, I, I'm ambivalent about it. And yeah, we'll have to see where it goes from there. Yeah, I personally feel like if somebody approached me with this idea of having like a Jewish history right. month in the United States, and you know, I have an aversion to it because I'm right. so focused on e pluribus unum of right. how we're all American right. and we're all right. united through that. And right. so right. sometimes I worry about this division. I think it is important to learn right. history. And, yeah. you know, obviously we'll, we'll get into the importance yeah, yeah. Of, of history in general, yeah. Yeah. but also the importance of like real unity, not like right. the pretend unity that right. our president has told us about. Right. Exactly. And so how do we, exactly. how do we create that real unity if we con- consistently just approach one another as, right. you know, separate groups, right? Right. right. Yeah. I, I think that's the complexity of it, um, Marissa, that you have the uniqueness that is America, right? This, what we used to call melting pot, right? Mm -hmm. Different ethnicities, different groups that have built this amazing place, right? And so it is both where they've come from, whether it was Jewish people fleeing uh, after the Holocaust, whether it was even earlier in the 1900s coming from different places here, and but building America, the tapestry that is America, they came and were proud to be Americans, they fought in the wars to fight for freedom, right? We talked about uh, the black soldiers who fought the World War I, World War II, right? Why Mm. would they do that? Even though there were struggles here because they were Americans and they're proud of that. And I think that that's some of what is more lost now. Mm -hmm. Being American is more ambiguous, maybe even negative because Mm. of all the the propaganda people are told and everything. And so that's what's lost oftentimes, I think. I love the opportunity to speak to you a little bit about you know, your journey yeah. and some of your thoughts about the black community. There's 
obviously a lot of conversations happening this month. And, you know, we had the Kyrie Irving and and Kanye tantrum. I'll call it a tantrum just because I'm a typical mom. But before we get into that, I know that one of the things that you recognize is the importance of understanding where you came from. That really helped solidify your identity. And your your birth name was not Dumasani. Your birth name was Dennis, right? But you changed it to Dumasani. Yes, ma'am. Will you tell me a little bit about why you did that? Sure, sure. So... This was in the 90s, and at this time, it was a real turning point, a spiritual journey for me, both cultural and spiritual. And I say it that way because there were so many things that were happening at the same time, right? One of those was a need to and a desire to know more about just both Pan-African history and Africa as, as a continent, as a region, right? So I began to do that. I, I became a Christian at a very young age. My parents were my family's really religious. And so there was this love for Israel that had been there from the time I was little, right? I would read the Bible, but I read the Old Testament more than the New Testament, right? I knew about the patriarchs, and I want to know about Joseph. I know these stories by the time I'm in grade school, right? Because I keep reading them, right? I read them more again than the New Testament. So the Africa part that happens a little bit later on in my young adult life happens as a, almost like a, this spiritual journey that later on became Israel-Africa, right? I didn't know where it was going. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happened for me in doing this, right, studying about different regions and places, was that my given name no longer felt like me. I literally didn't feel like when I would introduce myself and say my name, it didn't feel like I was talking about me. It was such a strange thing. And so I began to talk to some friends. And I had a very dear friend at the time, Noma Temba. She's actually from South Africa. She was living here in the States. Her, her, her nickname is Malume, which means auntie. Mm. And we began to talk. I said, Malume Temba, I think I, I, I want to do a, a name change. I feel like it's funny if I could compare it biblically, right? And there was, you know, the name changes that happened with certain patriarchs, right? Certain times in their life. It felt like that mm. to me. Not that I was Jacob, right? But yeah. I felt like it was a very interpersonal thing like that. Something mm. was happening. And so she said, Dumisani, which I'm a musician. And I, from the time I was little, and it means praise. And so, Dumisani u Yehovah is the Zulu phrase that means praise the Lord. It's like the equivalent of hallelujah in Zulu. And so, she gave me the name. I said, no, that's it. So I had a whole ceremony and everything. My family was there. I have to say this. My parents are no longer alive. But one thing that was really a blessing to me is that when I told them, I'm the youngest of seven children, right? So, your, your kid's coming and telling you, he's changing his name. I didn't know They're what like, was They're like, what? Did you right. not like the name we gave you? <laughs> and they've always been like that for me when I, in that they were open. I told them, it was quiet. And I told them in the speech that I gave them, it was really important to me, Marissa, that they knew that it was not rejection of them. Mm. My family loved my family. Part of the reason why I could explore something as drastic as that is because of how I came up. I came up loving my family, right? And this was just another phase of my development. My dad's Was it part of your discovery of your African roots? Yes. Is that Ndumasani is an African name? It is. It's a Zulu name. And it's it's so funny. That was the 90s, right? So I found out my my daughter, I have a big family. One of my daughters wanted me to do my DNA. Mm -hmm. For them. Daddy just wanted to know. So short version is I'm like 83% Yoruba, which is West Africa. And there's another percentage that's actually Siswana, which is Southern Africa, which is my daughter-in-law, her tribe, literally my son marries in to the one of the tribes that I descended from and d- had no wow. idea that I didn't so so this was part of it this is like it was a it was a pan-african way but it was right. a I want to kind of immerse everything so yeah oh, how yes, cool. ma'am. Yes, ma'am. well how did you become a preacher uh that's another story so let's see here so <laughs> I came up in church as a musician right and played in church all my life literally started playing in the choirs in, in grade school like it's like eight or nine mm. and so my family 
big church family. So I, that's people like all church babies. They know what I'm talking about. If you know that thing, you're there all the time, all during mm. the week and rehearsals and meetings and stuff like that. And always had a love for the Bible, always had a love for the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand it at the time at all. But uh, the music part of it was something that began to usher me. I began, some of my pastors began to mentor me because uh, they saw a pastoral preaching call. I was not all that interested because I wanted to do as a young person. But as I got older, I began to realize that. And so I was ordained as a minister by my mentor at the time on the East Coast, even though I was still on the West Coast, and uh, began pastoring around the early 2000s. And you started a church, yes, ma'am. right? Yes, ma'am. I started that. So in 2004, I started what's called the Congregation of Zion. It's in Stockton. My wife and I moved to the East Coast about two and a half years ago. The pastors that we have there, they're over the congregation and everything. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, ma'am, we started it there. It was all another part of that other journey, too. And even in doing that, it was something I never really saw myself doing when I was younger, but the path just kind of... You never know, direction. right? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. So yeah. I called you at yes, the height of the Kyrie Irving and Kanye West tantrum, as I call it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And basically, I was like, Dumasani, what is going on? Right. What is this black Hebrew yes, Israelite ma'am. movement? Yes, is ma'am. it significant? Is it big? And we had a fascinating conversation. Yes, and so things have really kind of calmed down a little bit yes, uh, as of now. But I just, I want to, in a very calm way, I want to understand right. what is this group? Is it something that we need to be informed about? Is right. it growing? Is it significant? Yeah, yeah. And just where did they come from? The way that most people have been introduced to it, especially with the Kyrie Irving, the film that he posted called Hebrew to Negroes, that type of thing, um, th- that group or the group that people are familiar with in the social media, and I call them the radical Black Hebrew Israelites, the praising Hitler, hating the white people, hating of Jews, lighter-skinned Jews, even saying the negative things about Israel. It is a more of a fringe element, but it is growing. We don't know, number. I say we in terms of any real demographics, it's growing in that, that mentality, which unfortunately much of it is fueled by some amount of confusion or anger, those types of things. That group is what most people are aware of in terms of social media. And media now as well, right? You had the whole um, Nick Sandman thing that happened a few years ago in D.C. That whole issue about the young man and the Catholic school kids and everything, but what wasn't told often was there's a large black Hebrew Israelite group that was there, catcalling and just it was it was a real bad scene, right? So there's a broader work. There's a black Hebrew Israelite community that's in Demona, Israel, that's been there since the late 1960s. That's a separate group, yeah. And, and that's, um, that was banned by Mehmet Ben-Ami. That was a controversial move as well. I, we don't have time to unpack that whole thing, but that's a separate thing, but that is something. So the part of the problem and the confusion, that name, either Black Hebrew Israelite or Hebrew Israelite, is used for so many different groups, some of them that really don't have anything to do with each other, mm-hmm. and that's part of where we are now. Lastly, I'll say there is a group that goes back to the 1800s, black Americans who began to associate with Judaism, began to claim it as religion, began to identify themselves as either being Israelite or just being a part of a Jewish religion. That goes back to sometime after the Civil War. That group, um, its lineage goes all the way to Rabbi Capers Fune. He is over the Israelite Board of Rabbis. He's in Chicago. 
he works throughout the other parts of the Jewish community and everything. And so they have a very, very long tradition. So Marissa, when you and I were talking, those other two groups, both Demona and the one that's based in Chicago, wasn't what was being referenced. What was happening with the Kyrie Irving one was the radical. I, I keep using that term because the negative, the anti-Semitic, the, the whole thing, right? And, and, and the way that that film was shared, there's a lot of inaccuracies in it and everything like that. Mm. That's part of what exploded. It's been there for a while. It's just kind of simmering. I think the perfect storm was the NBA, mm. Kyrie, Kanye, you know, all these things kind of happened all at once, mm -hmm. and it puts the uh, emphasis on that group. There. What do they actually believe? Well, again, now I know that there are a whole bunch of different yeah, yeah, groups, yeah. but, you know, I, I tried to watch this movie, the film, yeah, yeah. which is sad because I guess all of us watched it just because there was yeah. all this attention on it. Otherwise, nobody would have heard about right, it. Right. But it was basically this like slideshow. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. what I somewhat understood from yeah. the movie yeah. was that there is a claim that Jews who claim to be Jewish, if yes, they're white, are yes, not actually Jewish. Yes, and the real Jews are black. Yes, and essentially, the Ashkenazi Jews yes. stole the Jewish identity from yes. the blacks. Yes. Yes. That's my, my understanding. Yes. And so, Yes. What yes. from your? I know you've been studying this for a very long time. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma what is it that they believe? And I mean, is it is it a growing group of people? Or are they right. having an impact? So, what you the summary that you gave is pretty accurate. There is a group that which I would call the most radical of them. Again, hatred of white people, hatred of Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. Even in the film, there I, I, I noticed the progression. Meaning, when I first became aware of any type of black Hebrews, like, it was probably in the late 1990s, right? The internet wasn't really a thing. There was no social media, none of those things. I remember my wife and I talking because I would do research and I would read and find out. And that's how I found out about the group in Demona, how they got there and all those types of things. And one of the things that I found for that negative element was that very thing. The fact that there's a belief that only black people who are descendants from the transatlantic slave trade by virtue of the fact of being taken as slaves, and they base most of that on Deuteronomy chapter 28, this, this passage when it talks about you'll be taken as slaves on ships and no man will buy you. It, it's, a, it's a vague passage, but they look to that passage and they say, based on this, we are the true Israelites and these other people are imposters. What was interesting is that, that I've seen that for years, the evolution that I've seen is that now they'll, they'll name Ashkenazi, Misrahi, Sephardi. Right, and these are the type of descendants that Jews come from. So yes, Ashkenazi is typically Eastern European white. Yes, Sephardi is you know, Moroccan, Middle Eastern Jews. Yes, yes, and so they're claiming that all of these folks have stolen the Jewish identity. Yes, like, why do they care? Why can't they be Jews and allow the other Jews to be Jews? Well, that's a very like logical question, and that's part <laughs> of the thing. And that's part of the one of the most unfortunate and negative things about that mentality. Not only... Is it claiming I'm the real Jew and you're not, right? I, this It's also claiming that because of that retribution on you, you stole, right? That's a, that's a whole different thing. This type of militant radical, that is unfortunately what has fueled for some, particularly young black men who have felt either dispossessed or otherwise disenfranchised, right? This becomes a message of hope, right? I often have likened it to a white supremacist group that they're saying these things and here's this white young man who's feeling dispossessed for whatever reasons he's feeling that way. Boom, he, he, he gravitates to it. So in terms of what the numbers, again, this is something we haven't, we haven't measured, right? I, I can say anecdotally 
that I, having been observing it since the late 90s to now, it's grown, right? And mostly because of social media, right? You'll have mm-hmm. the street preachers, that type of thing. And these guys will wear their uniforms. They'll come. I remember seeing them. Yeah. I went to UCLA for college. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing them on campus and yes, they were ma'am. pretty aggressive. Yes, and I think I read in your book or, or you mentioned to me that they used to protest in front of churches, yes, ma'am. right? Because yes, ma'am. they would say that the preacher is a liar yes, by ma'am. not. Well, actually, it's a newer thing. Over the last several years, I've seen it more, right? They, they, are, they are aggressively telling this. Now, from the same premise of those people are fake, retribution on those people for stealing, and now going to black churches and telling them your pastors are fraud, he's not teaching you the truth. Again, not dialogue, but like this aggressive, so they would go to churches. I was a few months ago, we were in Stockton uh, with our congregation, and we were driving from somewhere, one place to another place, it was a Sunday. Hmm. And as we were driving, there was a church in the, near the neighborhood where we were driving, and there are guys about 20 deep, in the parking lot, passing out flyers. These people are coming to church and they're passing out flyers, totally disrespecting the pastor, totally disrespecting mm-hmm. the church. He's a fraud, he's that type of thing. So that, when I say newer, I don't remember that happening up until only the last couple of years, but you had descending on churches and actually confronting church leaders with their doctrine, right? With their, with their dogma but in a very, very kind of nasty and disrespectful mm. way. Are yeah. people responding to them? I mean, are they gaining attention? I mean, they obviously got attention on social media. Right, uh, right. But are more people joining their, you know, their, I don't know what you call it. Right. So they are, again, just from what we can kind of tell, and at some point we'll have to do some sort of measurement, right? Some sort of, like, let's do a poll. It, what I've seen, right, is that it is attracting the young, some young ladies as well, those who are looking to belong, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it's almost an exploiting of lack of identity. So this person is telling me one of the reasons why I feel dispossessed, one of the reasons why I feel lost is because I'm actually this and they stole it from me, therefore this resonates, right? So it's resonating with that type of person. As a matter of fact, having watched it as long as I have, I've also met people who were really deep within that movement mm-hmm. who are no longer there. And they would cite things like hatred, anger. They would say things like, it destroyed my marriage. This is a thing, right? There's actually, people are uploading YouTubes now saying that the I was- The involvement th- in this black Israelite yes, movement yes, destroyed their, their marriage. Is They're that what you're saying? They're actually explaining, here's why I was drawn in. Yeah, it's an ideology that is based on hate. So yes, of ma'am. course it's going to destroy, exactly. right? Well, to your point, that if it was truly- I believe I'm an Israelite. I mean, I'm Jewish. Okay, let's study Torah. But I always tell my wife, and we would tell some of the young people, we would say, and just from a teaching standpoint, that then if you then believe that this is what happened to you, then you would do what our Jewish friends call teshuva, right? So that it, nobody could steal your identity. Someone like Jacob, you know, Esau complaining that Jacob stole it. Well, no, you sold it, right? You, you, if that was your birthright, you right? And so that whole story, right? And then they, of course, they had to come to a resolution that Esau realized that, you know, he didn't really take it from me. I kind of gave it up. So if you really believe, if I believe that Marissa stole it, mm-hmm. did she steal it or did I leave it somewhere, right? If, mm-hmm. if it, and so isn't, shouldn't I be in Torah? Shouldn't I be doing what I need to be doing? Why does that have, what does that have to do with someone else? And see, these are some of the things that some people who've left the movement and then what those numbers are, I don't know. I just know I've been around it long enough to have seen and met some of them. Or it actually led some of them, Marissa, 
to go deeper into studying Judaism. Some of them have converted to an Orthodox Judaism, that type of thing, right? So it's been a strange ride. The, the most unfortunate part is the very negative anti-Semitic things that people are seeing that's actually feeding into a more of a broader anti-Semitism in our country right now. So it is an anti-Semitic ideology, you would say. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would say if you're saying that not only that person's not that's a fake Jew, first of all, you're disrespecting their heritage, right? And then you're right. saying that not only that, but they stole that from me. And they're the ones who are responsible for the slave trade, which is something that film says, which is not true, right? Yeah, it's pretty much textbook anti-Semitism. At that point, I, yeah. I hear uh, about Louis Farrakhan yes, oftentimes. Can you tell me who he is and how he's connected to this whole picture? Well, Louis Farrakhan has been the leader of the Nation of Islam, uh, I want to say since the 70s, since the mid-70s, if I had my, my dates correct. He was the successor of Elijah Muhammad, who was one of, the, he didn't found it, but he was one of the main leaders from the beginning. Louis Farrakhan um, has two main reputations throughout the black community and beyond. The Nation of Islam has been instrumental in helping, doing amazing things in the black community, helping the, reduce the recidivism rate in black incarcerated young men coming out doing prison work, job placement, those type. Of, th this has been the case for a while. Good things. The other side of Louis Farrakhan, the message, oftentimes extremely negative, anti-white, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. And this is part of the reason why his name, when it comes up, it engenders so much controversy. People will, particularly in the black community, have one view or the other about him. It's not often nuanced, right? Meaning, there will be this loyalty to him. There are a lot of young black men now older who see him as a father figure. They'll tell him that he's a mentor to them. And they'll tell you all the reasons why. And there'll be substantive reasons, right? And then there's this other side where he has, for decades, attacked the Jewish community, blamed the Jewish people for all kinds of things, particularly where the black community is concerned. Mm -hmm. The book that he helped put out back in the 90s, the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, which is a whole detailed thing about the Jews being the main reason why the slave trade even happened. Oh, they own this, they own that, which we're, mm -hmm. our organization is actually dealing with now and all the, the, the distortions of history. So that's who he is. He's now in his 90s. Mm -hmm. And I write about it in my book that though he's an older man, he's never been more formidable because when you hear a Kanye say the things that he said about the Jewish people, much of that is what Louis Farrakhan has been saying for decades, right? Mm -hmm. And so he influenced in terms of some, some in the hip-hop world, some in the, the, the professional sports arena, in politics, right? He, he, he has enjoyed access to some of the most powerful black people in the country for a long time mm -hmm. and has influenced because of that. Again, has done some positive things but has brought a much of this Israel and Jew hatred there. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's so controversial that even when you bring that up for those people who are the most loyal to him, they'll say, yeah, he's not anti-Semite. So the man literally said, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm anti-Termite, right? He, he literally, he'll say these things. And mm -hmm. I talk about, I give him several pages of my book, I just quote him. Wow. I, just, I, re I remember when I was editing the book, just so happens that two of my main staff and the people that were helping me happened to be black women, right? So we all, we would read it together. We'd go through different things. And whenever we came to that part of the chapter, one of them, one was, one was a pastor. She would stop. She would pause. I can't even. Because as you're reading it, the words are so negative and so bad. And so in the Jews, this and the Jews, that. And, and so we get that part. We would all kind of get it. We would be meeting on Zoom. 
and it'd be like a heaviness because you just don't want to read it, right? You just want to yeah. just go, how can, at some point, one of my friends said, how can people just sit there? And these are things, because what I'm quoting from are speeches, and there's thousands of people in the room, Jews, yeah. this, Jews, that. So, unfortunately, he has had a huge impact, right? Now, is it in terms of the majority of the black community? No, when I say huge impact, I'm saying for those particularly who have those anti-Semitic tropes, those type of things, hmm. much of that could be attributed to him. Why is it that it's, it seems like it's predominantly young black men that are attracted to this kind of narrative? Why are they so vulnerable and attracted to this kind of messaging? I found kind of like what you asked me about the whole African journey for me and everything. I, <clears throat> it was in the 90s again, at least it happened in the 90s, right? Well, early, early, early 2000s, is that's when I, for example, became more familiar with Louis Farrakhan. Like there's cable TV, not like it's cable to now, and I would flip in. Every once in a while, I would see him preaching in someone's church, usually, right? He'd be there, there'd be a Quran on one side, a Bible on the other side. He, mm. I remember even then, I would be watching. I didn't, that, I didn't know about his anti-Semitism that part of the late 90s, early 2000s. I didn't know about some of those other things. I'm just watching and listening. And I would listen and, and, and I would hear Louis Farrakhan's speech or sermon and I would agree with 65, 70% of what he said. Okay, that's on point. Black mm-hmm. community and fathers, the Million Man March and fathers and yeah, I'm all down, I'm completely down, right? Our families. And then when he would say something that was either biblically strange or later on heard about the, the Jewish part of it and everything said, okay, well... So to answer your question, if this person is giving me self-worth, he's speaking to me about things that are not being spoken of, right? If, if this person's talking about being a strong black man and being a husband and a father and all these things, which are good things, right? To, if, and then he makes this other turn and starts saying these other things, right? Mm. Then I'm going to be influenced by those and I'm going to not want to reject any part of what he's saying because I want to be a part of him. I want to be part of this community. And so for me, I, I, what I recognize, this is only in retrospect, right? This wasn't in real time, Marissa. This, mm-hmm. I'm looking back, I'm saying, so why didn't you get pulled in? I said, well, I knew who I was, right? So it wasn't a situation that my mom, my dad, not in a brag, I mean, we weren't any significant people, just had my family, right? My mom, my dad, my, my aunts, my uncles, my, my family, my, our, our church. So there was an identity. That's why I said about them coming from the segregated South. And I, I learned my mom was friends with the people who desegregated at Central High School, right? So I learned about these things. A quick, quick, quick example. I learned about the controversy of desegregation from my mother and father, meaning, she said to me, Dumisani, I, I paraphrase, it was more nuanced. There was, it wasn't like you're hearing about it here. There was real deep debates in the black community about desegregation, not whether or not we were owed the rights as con- by the constitution, but how to go about doing it. She said, there was, a, there was two minds. One, one said, integration is what needs to happen. We need to go to white schools and that's what's going to be fair. And there was another school that said, no, what's happening is that the, the revenues that are being, the, the taxes that are actually going to school, it's being unfairly distributed, which is true. They would get the revenues from everyone, but they would give the most of the revenues to the white schools and black schools get less. We want the revenues more evenly distributed, but we still want our schools. And she told They me wanted the schools to separate. be separate. Why? Because their feeling was that once integration happened, those who were racist would not stop being racist and simply treat those children differently. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to throw their kids into the mix of, of that. They to, wanted to kind of shelter them. To quote that what it was? Malcolm X in this conversation, he said, what, only a fool will let his enemy educate his children. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So that was a separate mindset, right? So this, mm-hmm. I'm learning this as a kid. So as I get older and I hear about stuff in the middle, like I, history books about, because it wasn't a monolithic thing. They, so for example, they saw the nonviolent struggle for justice that Dr. King and others led, and they respected it. But there were debates within the black, my mom said they would have in the basement of the church, they would be talking about these things like any other group, because no group was, is a monolith. Everyone agreed that change needed to happen, okay. but how it happened was the concern. And then she said to me, and when integration happened, her school sat there like a mausoleum. They fired all of the best black teachers. They kept the worst ones to almost keep them on staff, almost like a ridicule. And sure enough, here the students are in the quote unquote white school, right? Mm -hmm. And what they feared happened. They were not nurtured. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I tell people, and I tell my story, so do we sign are you against integration? No, no, that's not, my point is not, let's keep everything separate. The point was that the way that it happened, there's certain things that weren't thought through. Right? Mm-hmm. And one of those things was the institutions. When we consider like Thomas Sowell talking about the fact that you had centuries of slavery from the 1600s to the end of the Civil War, and then another century of Jim Crow segregation. Mm-hmm. But this community that had been so beleaguered still has intact families, marriage rates higher in 1960 than in white families. Mm-hmm. How are they doing that? Thomas Sowell talked about there was nothing to see at the end of slavery, black men walking across state lines to go and put their families back together, right? These husbands, these fathers, how are they building Black Wall Street at the turn of the 20th century? Why is that even a thing? Not just in Tulsa, but in parts of the country. How are they participating in the American dream? Not even a generation removed from slavery. Again, as I told people before, constitutional republic, free market economy, boom, right? They can only do this in a nation like America with all of the difficulties that are there. They're able to move forward. When those institutions were dissipated in a way like a integration would do in terms of like now I don't have my school. Yes, it's a segregated school. You know what's really funny now? What's happening right now in the whole social justice thing? Kids sec- separating themselves. Well, now themselves. they're going racist all over yes, again. Ma'am. See that? And, and it's being exploited by people who have their own political agenda. Mm-hmm. Why are some of the young people being pulled into it? Well, it goes back to the whole black Hebrews light thing. It goes back to Lewis Farrakhan thing. Why would I sit here and listen to this negative stuff? Mm-hmm. These things that are actually not going to build me up except for to be in a community and to feel like I belong, right? Mm-hmm. I, if, if my identity is such that you are helping define me, even though some of what you're saying is wrong and bad, I'm not going to leave if I don't feel like I have enough mm-hmm. independence from you. You still have to continue to define me. I still have to be a part of this group. So I realized that as I'm watching Farrakhan in my 20s and 30s and looking at it, one of the reasons why me and others like me are not being impacted in that way. It's because, well, I don't... You knew, you knew your history. I had a dad, right? right. And I, this was not, I'm not saying in a facetious way I'm, or in a right. flippant way. I'm like going, I, 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 Marissa, I, my dad was this amazing person. And we talk about dad. I don't care if it's black, white, Hispanic. It doesn't matter. Fathers are yeah. important, right? So it has a lot to do with what I believe about me, my own self-worth, all of those things, right? So I recognized as I got older, I said, okay, why didn't I get pulled in? I saw the Black Hebrews light thing back then. I said, okay, why didn't, well, a lot of it had to do with my family. I, I didn't have a need to be a part of something else that was going to define me. I, my family defined me and gave me parameters or gave me the freedom to even discover other things about me. Right. So, I, I hope guess, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess what, what makes sense here is that 
in some ways, these government entities try yes, to come in and become the parents of, of these kids. And yes, I mean, they're trying to do this to all of us, yes, but specifically, you know, yes, the black community is vulnerable because yes, they don't necessarily understand where they came from or what their heritage. Yes, There's a great, I gotta, I gotta find this. So, you yes, know, we all love Tom Sowell around yes, here and yes, this book, I try to read it uh, over the last week. So there is a, there's a paragraph in here that actually resonates with me that mm -hmm. I'd love to just read out to you and sure. maybe you can comment on it. And so he talks about false memories mm -hmm. and the importance of knowing where you came from mm -hmm. and what your, you know, essentially your your history is. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know your history and you don't know where you come from, mm -hmm. it leaves this very dangerous vacuum mm -hmm. that can be filled by, by anybody. Mm -hmm. It would not be much better to wake up some morning with false memory induced in you by some means, by some other person to serve that other person's purpose with all memories expunged, that you do not serve that end and other memories twisted or created out of thin air to make you the willing instrument of some ulterior design. So I could talk about this forever. I'll make it short. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, Black History Month was actually Black History Week, which was created by Dr. Carter Woodson in the earlier, around 1930s, I believe, right? He was a educator, black educator, and one of the leaders in the black community. And his purpose was kind of what we're talking about now. These black young people need to know their heritage and their history. They need to know, understand who they are. It became month later on. He wrote, one of his seminal works was called The Miseducation of the Negro. One of the greatest hip hop albums of all time, Lauryn Hill, it was called Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. It was a play on that title from that book. And so part of the point that Dr. Woodson made was what Dr. Soul is saying there, that for a person who doesn't know who he is and then is given a false image of who he is, that person, you've ruined them. Mm -hmm. And not only them, the children that they have, right? Because then they will be defined by pop culture, critical race theory, right? They're going to, someone else is going to tell that person who they are, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what I found more and more. With our, we have six children. We homeschool them all. We kind of watch the development. We do other areas of education and everything. And so we had a lot of time with other young people and other parents' children watching them, the music education, all type of thing. And what I found to be true is that for those students, whether it was a single parent home or both parents, but were loved and nurtured, and that child excelled. That child excelled, even if it wasn't academically, in him or her becoming who they were going to be. For the child who came from a certain amount of brokenness, uncertainty, God forbid, abuse, that child had a much more difficult time coming into who he or she was. So to that point with Thomas Sowell, if you take away my heritage, identity, whatever, and then you give me something else, right? That's a whole, I'm an Israelite and you're not the real Israelite, so I'm gonna, right? So those two things have nothing to do with each other. Why does that resonate with certain people? I found that by and large, for those people who are looking for identity and there's enough brokenness that's there, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that's part of why we are where we are right now in our society. One of the things you mentioned to me when we spoke a few months ago was yes, that there are nefarious motives yes, that are taking advantage yes, of vulnerable young folks that want to understand where they come from. Yes, like who are these groups that are using this 
I guess, vacuum that is created in, in people's history? That's the million dollar question, Marissa, because I think I don't think it's one particular thing. I think we see like in education, right? Critical ethnic studies here in California that Gavin Newsom signed into law back in 2020, I talk about in my book, is a complete revision of history, particularly anti-Zionist part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Israel's committing genocide, all these types of things, which have nothing to do with the history of these people, right? And some other ethnic histories are completely left out, right? Why? The, the, the question becomes, why? why? Why would you tell these false stories about the, and leave this group out, right? Well, it has to do, for me anyway, with agenda, right? If I can confuse the person enough, was it Lincoln who said that the future of the nation is coming out of those classrooms, right? So that if I need the person to be pliable enough, I need them to be suggestible enough. I need them to not question things, right? I need to take critical thinking out of their minds. I need them to be programmed to do what I want them to do, right? Yes, ma'am. I think that the, that becomes now the impetus. I don't want them to have a rigorous education, which goes right. back to uh, what uh, Carter Woodson was saying. I want them to be told what to do. I think that this is some of what we've been dealing with for a while now, right? And then in terms of the black community, it, it became the Petri dish, right? You have the whole, I, I call the war on poverty, a war on the black family, right? This somehow was supposed to help, right? It didn't help, right? And then one of the things that it did, there was an element within the war on poverty and the welfare state that specifically focused in on men, that it incentivized that home not having the father there. The more children, the young lady had more obligations, but did not have a man there to help, the more money the government would give. And Thomas Sowell talks about that as well. You've incentivized this very thing. I believe that began to expand and goes across the country, right? It is there, it's destroying the family and even the the, the purpose of these the husband and wife working together, right? So if, if I inserted something that is a replacement for the man, mm -hmm. Well, one of the things, gonna, the, fact, the, the psyche of the man, the young man who comes up in there, I, I'll say this real quick. I talk about the story. Those are watching um, the movie Claudine, hope I'm saying it right, starring Diane Carroll and, and James L. Jones. Google it. Watch it. It came out in 19, 1974, and it is an amazing commentary on what was going on with the black family by that point. I talk about that movie. We're actually doing some uh, uh, education things that we're going to be releasing later on in February. And I talk about that movie in, in the context of fathers, what it meant. The young man, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, played the, played the son. And he was in a group, an activist group. And they were staging a protest. And the name of the protest, what they were chanting was, work not welfare. I'll never forget this, right? And they were, the cops come. This is in Harlem, right? It's all happened. And what they're saying is that this government intrusion has destroyed our, these are these are young people right mm. and we don't want welfare we want work they're fighting for jobs and i said to my young people to my kids that was 1974 the 1963 march on washington was a march for jobs and freedom right so they're asking for jobs but the government's not giving them jobs it's mm. giving them a check and that had a debilitating effect mm -hmm. those things would mess with a person's mind right and so they essentially became more vulnerable to all kinds of yes, bizarre ideologies I've gutted your community, and now here comes the next wave. Now let me tell you why you are you are. Right. Those people stole this, and those people stole right. that. And, and that. so the yes, whole Black History Month, all the history that is taught is about slavery. It's not yes, about victories, yes, right? It's not about achievements, accomplishments, why you can do. It's more yes, about why you're oppressed. Yes, ma'am.
that and what's what's going on in much of our history, the critical ethnic studies, critical race theories. Like, let's look at everything through the lens of race, even if race has nothing to do with it. Right. Let's do that anyway, and let's look at it from the oppressed oppressor narrative. And there right. you go. It fuels that that displacement that I'm already feeling. Right. I know you do a lot of work with the Jewish community, which is really why I called you during this time where, you know, the whole black Hebrew Israelites, whatever you call them, came about. Why is that? such a recurring issue, this black-Jewish relationship. I mean, you, you hear, obviously, there was the, the wonderful moments where Martin Luther King, you know, stood and walked hand-in-hand hand with uh, Rabbi Joshua Heschel and worked with, uh, I guess, Thomas Sowell also talks about middle, I mean, he has a whole chapter here about the mm. Jewish community and, mm. and calling a group of folks, including the Jews, middle middlemen yes, or or middle folk uh, communities, minorities. Yes, yes, uh, you you have an entire book that talks about it. Yes, yes, uh, just where does this come from? I mean, I think it's a very positive relationship, but yes, can also turn sometime, somehow yes, negative. I I say uh, we say only halfway jokingly in our organization, Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel, that the first Africa Israel summit was when. Queen of Sheba visited Solomon 3,000 years in mm-hmm. Jerusalem, right? So you're talking about a relationship between Africa and Israel, then by extension, the Jewish diaspora, the black, right. the African diaspora, for thousands of years. So here in the States, a generation before Dr. King and Joshua Heschel, you had Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington at the turn of the century, the Rosenwald schools, right? This Jewish philanthropist whose rabbi was M.L.G. Hirsch, one of the founding members of the NAACP, right? Mm. So you have this black Jewish involvement here at the end of the 1800s, beginning the 1900s, that actually set the course for the nation. You have millions of black students, children, who don't have access to schools because of Jim Crow segregation. Mm-hmm. Booker T. Washington, philanthropist, have Tuskegee, you know, he has an idea to provide schools for them because there was not an education system that we understand now today, Mm -hmm. which is a crazy thing anyway. So he approaches Julius Rosenwald. They begin to work together and of Sears Roebuck fame, the man is very, very wealthy. And statistically, Julius Rosenwald, of the billions of dollars that he spent, over half of it was for the black community. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just the Rosenwald schools, but the Rosenwald fellowships for everybody from James Baldwin to Maya Angelou got money from this fund. He's long gone, but the fund is still helping, you know, these students continue on. Uh, the, The housing that he built there in Chicago. I mean, just this this man, Carter Woodson, the man I talked to you about who started the whole black history. He lived in the housing that Julius Rosenwald built in Chicago. Right. Right. So. That relationship has had so much good for so many people. It was that civil rights movement that defined civil rights mm-hmm. for the world, right? Mm-hmm. So it became an iconic thing. That synergy is very spiritual, very cultural. You know, uh, the Negro spirituals back from the times of slavery, almost all of them were in the Old Testament. Go down Moses, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. There's always been this deep, deep identification, mm-hmm. which we believe in organization is going to continue on. It's in a rough space right now, mm-hmm. but we believe it's going to, it, history will prove that it will continue on. So that's one thing that for us is very, very important. I believe it's important for many, many different reasons, but there's a deep spiritual element that's actually there. There's a shared history that's mm-hmm. there. A, sh- um, a shared struggle in many ways yeah, too, yeah. right? When you, or in shared victories in, in the terms that you like to... Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I, 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 I was, I was shared with my Jewish friends and my black American friends were, when our Jewish brothers and sisters come together at Passover mm-hmm. and they have the Seder and they, the purpose of it isn't to talk about how big and bad Pharaoh was. The focus right. is not the Egyptians, right? right? The focus is God who delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptians, right? So it's a time of victory. So... This was very similar in terms of the black community. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the Juneteenth celebration, which is when the final 
Black Americans learned that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed was to celebrate freedom. So it wasn't a commiserating about what white people had done. It was about what God had done. And so this is why the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the Glory, the movie Glory was made from that, Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. It was a story about these black soldiers who fought for their own freedom, right? And I love, we watch it periodically in our house. They lost that battle in South Carolina, but it helped turn the tide of the war because once both Abraham Lincoln, Grant, and all of them saw how these black soldiers fought for their freedom, and then some for the union of the country, other black soldiers were allowed to come in and then fight, right? Mm -hmm. This has been the story of black Americans, right? Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and it is a rich, powerful history. And these were Americans, right? They weren't trying to destroy America, right? They're like, they, they would hold America to account. When Dr. King gave his speech in Washington, D.C., it wasn't to dismantle the nation. He was, we, we've come to cash a check, he said, is a promissory note. When the framers found, signed this Declaration of Independence, when they signed the Constitution, they were saying that we would all fall heir to this whole, all men are created equal, right? So this was what he was doing. So you had some of the most, quote unquote, patriotic Americans being black Americans who were fighting for the nation to be true to its, its calling, but very much being proud to be Americans, right? Yeah, your point about Passover and how the Jews celebrate Passover is so significant sure. because when I think about when we sit with my family and we, sure. we read through the Haggadah, the book that we read on Passover, sure. We really focus very, very little on Pharaoh or the Egyptians. The majority of the book is all about our victories. That's it's right. about freedom, liberty, and yeah. how we're going to basically emerge right. from hell with right. lots of gifts, yes, right? right. And, yes. that, and how we're going to, you know, build a new nation yes, and right. learn and study and yes, become right. stronger. Yes, we don't harp over what was done to us. Yes, right. We actually find strength in our calluses and we move forward. Yes, and, right. and, and if you look through many of the other Jewish holidays, yes. many of them really celebrate yes. The victory, mm. not the victimhood. I mean, the story of Hanukkah right. is the same thing, right? right. You talk about, right. of course, the, there was a destruction of the temple, but right. the whole holiday is really about miracles and gifts and light and all of that. Yes, and yes, I think that does a lot to the psyche of a child. Right. When you grow up in a home where your parents talk to you about, yeah, right. there was hardship, right. but we're going to focus on victory and we're going to build upon right. victory. Right. And, and perhaps that is really what's missing. Yes. Yeah. in Black History Month, right? Yes, in the community yes, that is so starving for yes, the celebration of success and victory and yes, positive and light yes, and not necessarily this feeling of constant yes, oppression no matter where you look. Uh, Carter Woodson, not Carter Woodson, I'm sorry, the other Woodson, Robert Woodson. Robert, yeah. Yes, ma'am. They created the curriculum, 1776 Unites. And part of the point is to instill that sense of belonging and identity into not just Black children, right? But it's coming from that perspective. It's actually telling about the victories, right? They talked about the hundred years of growth and prosperity. Ian Rowe, Glenn Laurie, Robert Woodson were sitting down with Peter, I uh, can't remember. Of, of Robinson? Un Robinson, yeah. Uncommon Knowledge. Several months ago, it's one of my favorite videos that I watched, and they were talking about why it's politically incorrect to talk about a century of growth and development in the black community from the end of the Civil War to the end of the civil rights movement, 1865, 1965. And Glenn Laurie explained that it's politically incorrect because focusing on it dispels, I'm paraphrasing, the victimhood. You're talking about a people again, slavery, Jim Crow, but built these families, built these institutions, how? It speaks to the resilience of the people, mm. but it speaks to also the nation in which they're able to do that. Well, if you tell that story, that's too much of a positive story. Mm. I have to strip it from all that and talk about the dogs that were sent and, and the lynchings and all those things happened. We don't gloss over any of those things. But when you focus on that, 
like focusing on Pharaoh and the Seder. And now yeah. it was a picture telling the Passover story and there was no deliverance, right? This is, we were just beat down and this would happen and, and none of the Egyptians, right? That's not a, so why would you want to tell that story? And if you told that to young Jewish kids every year, right. of course they'd be angry, right? right. Of course they'd be frustrated. Y'all, yeah. this happened. Angry at all the Egyptians yes, right now. Yes, ma'am, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to get them back. Oh, We're gonna, right. so but they hear the scary. whole story. They hear the whole, this is what happened. These are the bad. Here's the light. Here's the darkness. Here was the light, right? Uh, and it's hard not to be upset. I mean, yeah. as an educator, as a mom, I mean, yes, the fact that it's politically incorrect yes, to celebrate yes, the victories yes, of black America I mean, and how many there have been. I yes, mean, that's really yes, what should be the focus of the curriculum, not yeah. critical race theory, the, right? I use that one example real quick of the Tulsa Black Wall Street in 1991, 1921 when it was destroyed. In less than two years, the residents rebuilt it. Most people know one or two things about that story, either mm -hmm. that it was just, either nothing about it at all, right. or that it was destroyed. It was destroyed. Right? right? And of course, that would make somebody, oh, a, they had oil rigs and all that. Right. Yeah, it was destroyed. It was a very, very bad race, right? The whole thing. Mm -hmm. And the survivors rebuilt it, and it was wealthier after they rebuilt it than before. More businesses, more families, right? Mm. So that's what I'm saying. When you tell the black child, especially half that story, mm. you're and you're doing it intentionally, right? You're, you're squishing their program. and you're squishing their spirit, Absolutely. right? And creating that vacuum. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Wow. Well, the other thing you said to me earlier that which which is amazing is that homeschooling yes, is growing in the black community. Was it sixteen percent? Over sixteen percent of black households are homeschooling now. More than any, that's the largest percentage than any other. Ethnic I mean, that group. is incredible. Why? Well, uh, it's, well, we homeschool starting in the nineties, and we know that part of our reasoning was had to do with again identity, right? We wanted our children, for example, this wasn't the only thing, to learn about their heritage from people who knew and were not going to try to manipulate. You already knew back then yes, that if they were taught yes, history from a perspective of yes, victimhood, yes, they would not be set up to succeed in life. You already knew that back then. My wife and I remember, she's like, we're, she's a few great, she's a great ahead of me, just a few months ahead of me. We went to the same, we've known each other since we were five years old, so we literally went to the same elementary school and thing. And we both remember in history class, first, second grade, or whatever, you have your book, and then American history, and you have you know, George Washington and the other. And then this one chapter, boom, black people not discussed at all. And the first picture I have is a slave ship. Mm -hmm. Right? So, okay, that's the first detriment of me. So, I didn't exist until you needed slaves, right? Again, are they attempting to do that? Is that the intention? Maybe not, right? But mm -hmm. that, Along with now, other, it's way worse now, right? But, okay, here's, here's a picture of the civil rights movement, right? And then on. So I knew, who's Booker T. Washington? Frederick Douglass, right? Who, who are all these other people? Who I lived, you remember Harriet Tubman for the purpose of the Underground Railroad, right? Mm. But who are all these other, who was Carter Woodson? Right? These things I learned as a young adult after school, mm -hmm. I began to read, right? And I said, gee, in my 20s, I said, had I known this then, so what we said when we had kids, we're going, we're not, sending them through that. Why, why would we have them learn some reversed engineered, let's kind of like, like get some of these other ideas out of your mind? And that was part of it. Some of it was spiritual as well, right? Like being Christians and wanting them to have a spiritual base and foundation, those type of things. So we talked about, my, not we, my wife, it was her idea. She's just, she's the pilot, I'm the co-pilot, right? So she said this idea. I said, yes, honey, I agree with you. And it was part of one of the best decisions that we mm -hmm. ever made. So that was what was important to us. That's why I said in retrospect, I would look mm -hmm. and I would see 
the ideology is pulling people away. Do you think that's what's happening with families now? Absolutely. They they don't want their kids learning CRT and and whatever other stuff that's happening in these schools? Contrary to what some people believe, although there's all this controversy about what critical race theory is, there are black families who saw it and see it as victimization and said no. Wow. Now, part of the explosion had to do with the pandemic, right? 2020, schools are shut down, right? Slowly opened up and everything, and they, they online learning, those types of things, which it's only going to last for a little while. And it, only if you have the environment to be able to do that, right? Everybody can't just do that way. So much of it happened with that. Parents began to take it into their own hands. There were parents who began to homeschool who thought they would never do it, but because the circumstances became so dire, they began to take it into their own hands. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was powerful, Marissa, whether they homeschooled or whether they wound up finding something else for their child, they recognized that the ultimate a responsibility for their child's education was not the state. Right, it's the parents. Parents, absolutely. So if my child can't read or my child is being fed disinformation, only part of that is because of the institution that's doing it. The other part of it is me allowing that to happen, mm-hmm. right? So you have that. So these different reasons, and again, it's just, I didn't even know it was over 16% to the other, about a few months ago. I knew it was growing, right? Yeah. But I didn't know how much. Incredible. It was another young lady who works for an organization called Free Black Thought did an article. And then I saw it and, she, she's actually part of our organization now, too, part of our IPC ambassadors. And I saw it and I read it, and nope, she had all the numbers. As the young people say, all the receipts. Wow. More than any other ethnic group, right? And it's continued to explode. They said some 2 million students are no longer enrolled in the public school system over the last two years, right? Yeah. If that continues. Yeah. And I say more power to them, right? Exactly. Yeah, yes, ma'am. You know, yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. vote with our feet. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So they are feeling it. We could be looking at a very positive thing happening, right? If you're talking about no more of the disinformation or at least people being indoctrinated and not having access to authentic mm. history and education, that's a that's a good thing. So yeah. A, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your work with Zionism? Yes, why? First of all, what is Zionism right. and why are you why are you so involved in that? Well, that's a part of a calling thing as well. I didn't I didn't choose it, it chose me, right? Mm-hmm. My first trip to Israel, 2012. I'm part of Christians United for Israel African American Pastors Tour. Never been to Israel, always wanted to go. And I'm there at the Western Wall, and I have this again, Israel and Africa are already passions of mine, mm. but they kind of marry each other there, the wall. And I have this overwhelming sense that when you go back, strengthen the ties between Israel and Africa, the black and Jewish mm. communities. And as I tell the church, you always kind of have a nice sense of God's telling you something because you have no idea how you're going to do it, right? That sounds great, but I don't even know where to start. And I saw, I wrote the first edition of my book, Zionism in the Black Church, began to do speaking Zionism, the belief that Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people and that they have the right to live there in peace. Um, and it is a both a biblical mind, but it is also a geopolitical reality, right? And the black community, particularly since the refounding of the state of Israel, has been very involved if for no other reason than Israel's enemies have always attacked it on the basis of race, Zionism is racism, Israel's apartheid state. None of those things not true, but they are a pilfering of a legacy that was actually true for people who went mm. through it. So Dr. King's vocal support for the state of Israel wasn't just because he was friends with the Jewish people he was. No, it's because he was just trying to weigh in on the Middle East. He had other things going on in terms of the civil rights movement, but it was an issue of justice for him, right? Mm-hmm. And he defended Israel's right to exist as he was speaking for the vast majority of the civil rights community. That's part of a legacy that I completely embrace. After he dies, his his friends and family started an organization called BASIC in 1975, Black Americans to Support Israel Committee. The whole Israel narrative has been so woven into the fabric of Black Americans. It's been the case for a long time. Our music, 
all those things are preaching. When Dr. King's preaching, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Mm. Hours before he's killed, he's referencing Moses, which happens to be, if I'm not mistaken, the last portion of the Torah readings, right? He's actually referencing Moses, mm. talking about the promised land. Here's Dr. King, not knowing he's going to die, but he's saying, we're going to get to the promised land. So this, this has always been the case. So for me, understanding that there have been all kinds of attempts to sever that tie with Israel and Africa, to sour that relationship. I tell young people all the time, you know you have something valuable if there's somebody always trying to steal it or taint it. Hmm. And if this is a spiritual warfare thing that we're discussing, it's just amazing that when it comes to these two communities that have so much in common, that have done so much together, why are there always these negative elements that are always, always seemingly trying to fray, always trying to pull apart? So our organization celebrates that, but also looks ahead to what will continue to happen, right? There's amazing things happening in Africa right now with all the struggles that are happening. There's also this Israel-Africa synergy that's happening that's never before. I've met pastors over the last several years who started their own, in Africa and here, organizations to strengthen these ties. It's almost like simultaneously they begin to work and to do my son's father-in-law, Reverend Kenneth Mashway, started his pro-Israel organization in South Africa the same year we started ours. We didn't know each other, right? He's in South Africa. He starts a pro-Israel black Zionist organization. We start one in 2013 here. And we believe that this is like a clarion call that's going on. This, mm-hmm. this relationship is powerful and needs to be defended. And we work with our Jewish brothers and sisters to do it. I remember when I met uh, Ken Meshwe a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And the reason he told me that he's so passionate about this work is because he felt that people were robbing him of his history yes, when ma'am. calling Israel an apartheid state. Yes, and I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said to me, but it was basically, you know, my parents and my family went right. through real apartheid. Right, and if right. you're going to claim that Israel is an apartheid state, right. you're robbing right. me of the true meaning of what apartheid really means. Yes, and so, I, you know, I think that when we, are, we accept living in a world of lies, right. then we lose all truth all around. Yes. And that was something that I really, you know, was yeah. so inspired when he shared that with me. Yeah, it resonated with me. And he was saying very similar to what black Americans were saying that were defending the same thing, right? That not only is Zionism, not racism, right? Not only are you libeling the Jewish state, you are also, what you're describing, Marissa, makes it very dangerous. If everything is apartheid, nothing's apartheid, right? Mm-hmm. If everything is racism, nothing's racism, which is why mm-hmm. people will get up in arms about what they feel is a really, really apartheid, and there's a million slaves in Libya, and there's a Christian genocide in Nigeria, and another 50,000 slaves in Mauritania, and on and on, right? So if I was really concerned about justice, I would be concerned about those things. No, someone told me that Israel's doing X, Y, Z, and it, I've been programmed in that way, right? Mm-hmm. But who's paying for that more than places like Africa, the, the slaves in Qatar, the slaves in Saudi Arabia, right? When Israel is demonized like that in the United Nations, mm-hmm. Israel will be fine, right? The Israelis are strong. They'll continue to build. They'll continue to do what they're going to do. But who's paying for that in terms of the international community? Those places where there is genocide, those places where it is actually happening. People are dying. I believe this. I saw the stat. Some 43,000 Nigerian Christians have been killed over the last 12 years. Hmm. And our State Department just decided two years ago, that's not an issue. So it took Nigeria off the list of nations in which religious persecution is going on. So not only do we, are we not concerned in the West, right? We're actually giving cover to it, right? But let's boycott Israel, right? Right. But It's all political. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And the people that are paying for it are the people who are in those vulnerable positions. Mm -hmm. So Reverend Mishwe recognizes that, yeah, you're going to take that libel 
and use it against Israel when there are other situations, particularly starting with his own family, what they had gone through, right? Mm -hmm. But in other places of the world where people are ignoring it. So. Well, you're doing amazing work. We're trying to do the best we can here at PragerU. You guys are doing amazing uh, stuff. You know, I feel compelled to just say maybe we should end with some sort of blessing and hope as we close this conversation about so much good that we try to do in a country that is really incredible for both of our communities and for Americans in general. One of the things I love that happens in the Jewish tradition is that this, it's, I believe it's a scripture and is in part of one of your Siddur, I think. In every generation, there have been those who've risen up against us to destroy mm -hmm. us, but the Holy One, blessed be He, right. He has sustained us. I think that that hope that's based in love for God and love for family that even in the midst of all the things that are going on, and, and shout out to Prager, because we've been watching you all and, and seeing what you're doing, you're doing amazing work. And then, you know, like you guys say, maybe we all go from strength to strength mm. and doing The whole door of a door. Mm. That's how you say it in Hebrew. Ah. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for having this conversation. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you.